The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Anyway, today for the lesson, it's primarily for the youth, but it obviously applies to everyone. If you're not uh, the old, the aging person described in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, then this does apply to you, regardless if you're a teenager, if you're middle-aged, or however old you are. So if you want to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter uh, 12, but we're actually eventually going to be rewinding to chapter 11. Today's lesson is about remembering our Creator in the days of our youth. Ecclesiastes 12.1 says, Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. And the author of, of Ecclesiastes identifies himself simply as the preacher. He doesn't really specifically name himself, but most likely this is King Solomon, just because of how there's so many similarities between the preacher and King Solomon. And Solomon wrote this book to articulate his struggle to find meaning and joy in life. As you read through the entire book, Solomon tries to find insight into a life well lived by accumulating massive amounts of knowledge. Uh, he thinks that wisdom will give him the answers he needs. Maybe he'll stumble across some philosophy to live by that will make him enjoy his life, or maybe he'll discover some profound truth about the world around him that will give him a new insight of how to view his life. But in chapter 1, his knowledge proves to be unhelpful. In chapter 1, Solomon begins to loathe all the wisdom that he's acquired because it reveals the ugly truth of our existence. He, he realizes how much suffering and persecution and oppression that goes on in the world, and he realizes that no matter how you live your life, you're ultimately going to die, and there's no escaping it. And most people know they're going to die, but they try to comfort themselves by not dwelling on the idea. Solomon tries, tried that as well. In chapter 2, Solomon tried to give himself to pleasure and sensuality in an attempt to try and at least enjoy the life that he did have. But that didn't work either, because the idea of death crap, crept its way back into his mind. Solomon knew that everything he had and, everything, and every effort he put into trying to find joy apart from pursuing God would it last only for a moment? And from the perspective of eternity, his whole life would be nothing more than a few seconds, if that. And that is really the heart and soul of Ecclesiastes. It's Solomon telling us to live our life in view of eternity. Uh, starting our life, living our life, knowing the only certainty of your whole life is that you're going to die. Start with the fact you're going to die and work backwards from there. So uh, as I mentioned last time when we were in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, even though many familiar Bible concepts like the resurrection and other things aren't really mentioned in the book, that doesn't mean that Solomon did not believe in life after death. Uh, the very idea of life after death is crucial to understanding his whole argument. And without life after death, his whole argument falls apart. And who tend to be the people who struggle the most to live in view of eternity? That would be the youth. 
Because even if they acknowledge they should live their life in view of eternity, they lack conviction regarding the brevity of life. And they lack a fear of God, usually. And because they lack a fear of God, useful people tend to be very weak to the pull of their passions and emotions, and they're easily overcome by their anxieties. And it's difficult for them to desire to serve others. And why is that? Why is it more difficult for young people to keep focused on eternity? Because they have not lived long enough to go through many of the hardships and experience the pain of life as many of the older people have. Typically, youth have not yet had, have not been humbled to the same extent as adults and elderly people have. At least not to the same degree. They have not yet been brought low. They, their life has not smacked them in the face and caused them much pain and distress. Older people have learned all the ironies and uncertainties about life that Solomon spends much of Ecclesiastes talking about. And when I say the ironies of life, I do not mean coincidences. People get those confused all the time. They say coincidence when really they mean irony. Uh, Walking into a restaurant and you find one of your best friends there and they're wearing the same shirt as you. That's coincidence. That is not irony. (laughs) Irony is when something unexpected happens. When you expect to work hard and get, earn a good income from working hard and you wind up poor, that's irony. That's something unexpected happening. The opposite outcome of what you would anticipate. And in Ecclesiastes, Solomon talks a lot about the irony of life and how much it frustrated him. He says there is wickedness in the place of judgment. There are evil men who are given authority. Wise men share the same fate as fools. Both the wise man and the fool will die, and both will be judged by God. So why are they the more wise? There are people who work hard to earn a living and yet wind up poor. There are lazy freeloaders who wind up rich, maybe because of an inheritance or sheer luck. And lastly, there are kind people who suffer, and yet there are wicked people who live long, healthy lives. And all of that really frustrated Solomon because nothing seems to go according to plan and the world does not seem to function the way it should. God humbles people to make them realize how much they truly need him. And oftentimes because, and oftentimes being humbled is what it takes for God to get through our hardened hearts and rip out our idols and our passions that take his place. I think that's why older people tend to be much wiser and much more (laughs) self-controlled. They have been humbled by their age, both emotionally and physically, both in spirit and in their bodies. Solomon teaches us that growing old will humble us. Physical pain in the body makes a person realize that he is not as strong as he thinks. He is, in fact, frail and weak, and he's subject to decay, despite how unfair he may feel it to be. And also, you can consider how depressing the aging process can sometimes be. As people... Uh, age, they can no longer do all the things that they used to love and all the things that they thought were just normal. Being able to just go to the bathroom on your own without assistance. Being able to get up and make yourself breakfast. Now they have to have everyone do everything for them. And oftentimes they're forgotten about. As it becomes more and more difficult to take care of them, they're oftentimes put into an organization's special care. And maybe their family will visit them for a while, but eventually their family stops visiting. Oftentimes people, uh, elderly people put into these organizations become lonely because people forget about them. 
So moving on into Ecclesiastes 12. In Ecclesiastes 12, Solomon says, Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not. And remember doesn't just mean to be aware of something. He's saying have a conscious, willful determination to serve God. Serve God with the energy and strength he has given you today because he has only given it for a time. Eventually, the curse of sin will take hold in your body and your body will begin to decay. And you won't have the opportunity to go back and do all the things that you know you should have done. Not just the things you wanted to do, but the things you should have done. We'll read from starting in chapter 11, verse 7, if you want to look there. And some of the things Solomon is going to describe about the aging process in chapter 12 it has a lot of very obscure imagery. Uh, some parts even commentators have a hard time discerning. But the overall uh, message is very apparent. So we'll read from uh, 11, verse 7. Truly the light is sweet, and a pleasant thing it is for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man live many years and rejoice in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. All that cometh is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. Therefore remove sorrow from thy heart, and put away evil from thy flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the, near, the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun, or the light, or the moon, or the stars be not darkened, nor the clouds return after the rain. And there he's describing uh, cloudiness in the eyes and not being able to see well. In the days when the keepers of the house shall tremble, your arms become shaky. And the strong men shall bow themselves. You can't hold, your legs can't support you anymore. You need assistance in walking. And the grinders cease because they are few. Your teeth begin to rot. And those that look out the windows be darkened. And again, that's a reference to the eyes. And the doors shall be shut in the streets when the sounding of the grinding is low. Your ears uh, begin to decay as well. Your hearing is no longer as well, as good as it used to be. And he shall rise up at the voice of a bird, and all the daughters of music shall be brought low. This is one of those parts where people have difficulty understanding what he's talking about. Most likely he's talking about insomnia or difficulty sleeping. Also, when they shall be afraid of that which is high, and fear shall be in the way, they're scared of any physical activity, reaching things on high shelves, walking uphill, things like that. And the almond tree shall flourish, and the grasshopper shall be a burden. The almond tree shall flourish as your hair will begin to turn gray. The grasshopper shall be a burden, a sign of spring and rejuvenation. You don't really take pleasure in those things anymore. And desire shall fail, and to put that modestly, it means all your hormones are going to go away eventually. <laughs> because man, man goeth to his long home, and mourners go about the streets. Wherever the silver cord be loosed, or the golden bowl be broken, or the pitcher be broken at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity. And in verse 6, when he talks about the silver cord be loosed or the golden bowl be broken, the idea is of, of a lamp with a bowl of oil being hung on the ceiling with a silver cord. 
some people have different ideas of what he's trying to resemble there. Some people hold that the silver cord is the soul and the golden bowl is the body, so the soul holds up the body. I tend to hold the position because this is more describing physical decay, that the silver cord is the spine and the golden bowl is the brain or the head. The silver would obviously be resembled, resemble the whiteness of the spine. The golden bowl would resemble how yellow the brain looks when you open up the skull and because of the thin layer of fat over it. The pitcher be broken at the cistern and the wheel be broken. The pitcher be broken at the fountain, the wheel be broken at the cistern. It's talking about the arteries that pump blood in and out of the heart. And I've always found it amazing and how clever that is to describe uh, the important aspects of the human body. He describes the heart and the brain, which I think we all acknowledge are highly important. But he also adds in the spine. And if you really think about it, the spine is crucial to your body. Every member of your body is tied and connected to the spine. Your body receives messages from the brain because of the spine. And it really is an amazing piece of creation. It contains 33 individual vertebrae, 100 joints, 120 muscles, and 220 ligaments. It protects the spinal cord, allowing the brain to communicate with the rest of the body. It provides structural support to balance and maintain an upright posture. It enables flexible motion. It can, it can support 1,000 pounds of pressure in a neutral position. And if trained properly, it can lift around 400, 450 pounds of weight. That's an amazing piece of your body. And also the brain. I'm sure you've heard time and again how amazing your brain is. It's more powerful than a supercomputer. There is approximately 2,500,000 gigabytes of storage in the brain. <laughs> there is about one, 100 billion neurons in the human brain, which is about the same amount of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. The brain allows you to animate your body, to see, taste, touch, and smell, and hear the world around you. It's your physical connection to the physical creation. And if I could be allowed to make a little bit of analogy in verse 6, I think it's also amazing that the spine and the brain are compared to silver and gold. If a man came to you and said his house is overflowing with gold and his backyard's full of silver, you'd probably say, that's amazing, what are you going to do with it? Imagine his response is nothing. I'm just going to sit on it watch TV on the weekends. You would think that man's a fool. You're not going to spend it on anything. You're not going to donate it or invest it or use it for anything. The man says, no, I just want to sit on it. I think you're twice the fool if you don't use or spend your spine in your mind. You have an amazing spine, an incredible machine in your head, incredible computing device in your head. Are you going to use it to lift things? Are you going to use it to study? and serve God and others with it? Are you going to spend it wisely? And everyone realizes that they are going to grow old. Eventually the spine is not going to be able to work anymore. Eventually the brain may succumb to dementia and Alzheimer's. And everyone realizes that. And different people have adopted different ways of dealing with that idea. Our culture likes to promote beauty products and getting surgery to remove unwanted wrinkles on their face and changing their hair color because apparently turning gray is shameful. It's unwanted. Our culture is obsessed with youth culture and trying to look and act as young as possible for as long as possible. 
But the Bible is very frank and honest with us. It tells us favor is deceitful and beauty is vain. The word vain means fleeting. It dissipates very quickly. Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. And Solomon gets right to the point in the text we just read. Childhood and youth are vanity. They are fleeting. Scripture also says the glory of young men is their strength and the beauty of old men is their gray head. So you're very beautiful if you have gray hair. You have a little bit, not much. (laughs) And one commentator said this about the passage we just read. The gloomy picture of old age applies to those who have not remembered their creator in their youth. They They have none of the consolations of God, which they might have obtained in their youth. It is now too late to seek them. A good old age is a blessing to the godly. Old age doesn't have to be gloomy, even if, even if you do experience much of that decaying process and you experience all the pains of old age. Uh, Proverbs 16.31 says, The hoary head, the gray head, is a crown of glory if it be found in the way of the righteous. In other words, old age in a, of a righteous person can be joyful. Even Solomon says in chapter 5 of this book that an old man who served God with his whole life Speaking of an old man who served God his life with his life, chapter 5, verse 20 says, For he shall not re- much remember the days of his life, because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. He won't have his mind dwell on all the pain and the suffering he may have experienced or is experiencing, because he knows God will answer every moment of pain with joy. As we've been studying in our Romans class, Romans 8, 18 says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Eventually, Christ will come back and redeem the body. Culture treats beauty and strength as virtues for some reason. Trying to make yourself beautiful is virtuous. Trying to make yourself strong is virtuous. The Bible treats beauty and strength as temporal gifts and wisdom and character as virtues. And Solomon is urging us to remember to use those gifts while we still have them and to use them joyfully. But sadly, I see many young people who go to church and hoard all the healthy, youthful energy for themselves. They never show up to help others when they're in need because, well, Saturdays are their only day off. And and they're just too tired all the time. And they're stressed out about all their own problems and school and work and their family and relationships that they just can't really focus on anyone else. And that's not to diminish uh, any struggles you are having, but allowing your struggles to overtake you and make you self-centered is not okay. It's not the way God intends you to live. So how are you going to live your life? I hope you realize that being young or old is not an excuse for not serving God to the capacity he has allowed you to serve. If you'll turn to Matthew 10, 40, In Matthew 10, 40 through 42, Jesus said this, He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, 
Verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. And this is the heart of all of God's commandments. Someone who is willing to do the most menial task is the kind of person who God loves to use. Because someone who is willing to take the time out of their day and out of their resources to minister to other people is the kind of person who loves their neighbor as their self. And there will be a day of judgment where they will receive their rewards. Solomon, after telling the youth to enjoy youthful gifts and to remember their creator as they do so, says at the very end of the book, and I'm sure we're all very familiar with this verse, it's very, very popular, one of the most famous verses. In verse 13, he says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. But why? For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. I'm going to read that last verse again. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And I remember I asked this question a long time in Jorge's class to the kids. When you hear that, that God's going to bring every work into judgment, how does that make you feel? Make you feel afraid? A lot of people are afraid of that. The the idea that God knows every secret thing, every thought that crosses your mind, is going to bring it into judgment makes many people afraid. That on the day of judgment, God is going to be wrathful towards them. And I do think it's good that Christians remember that is the situation you would be in were it not for Christ and were it not for God's grace. But it's not good for Christians to forget that judgment day for them is not a judgment for punishment. It's a judgment to determine rewards. So verse 14 here, should, you should find encouraging because it reminds you that as you serve the Lord, God knows how tired you can get. He knows how exhausted and stressed you are. And you ought to know he will always honor those who continue offering their lives to him. As we just read a moment ago, Jesus said, he that receiveth you receiveth me. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple Verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. As you serve Christ's body on earth, you are serving him. And who is he? Who is Christ? According to Colossians 1.16, Jesus is our creator. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Jesus is the creator of the universe and everything in it. So when when scripture admonishes us to remember our creator in our youth, we ought not to forget that our creator is the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is why I think it's interesting the word creator there in the original language is in the plural. The Hebrew reads, remember now thy creators, with an S, in the days of thy youth. I hope the youth will want to serve in any way that they can, not just, when they, not just when you grow up, but right now, because you guys are the future of this church. We do have a disproportion of age groups in our church, a little bit. And as some of our members grow older throughout the years, the church is going to need more youthful energy and strength to get things done and to care for those in need. Yesterday, Gary mentioned how he knows of a few churches that are fading because they have no young people. None of them come to the church. 
One church he mentioned, if I understood what he was saying right, no longer has Sunday evening and Wednesday night church services because the congregation is too frail and weak to be able to make it there so regularly. And the pastor there doesn't really know at this point what's going to happen to the church. I do wonder what's going to happen to Berean. Because as of today, we don't really have a children's church anymore. They're all growing up. (laughs) I also wonder what is going to happen to the teens as they graduate from high school. Are you going to strive to serve God in your youth, or are you going to be like the man in Jesus' parable who spent all his time building up storehouses, thinking that you have enough time to get your life situated first, then you'll be faithful to the Lord's church? And I would also add, if you don't like hearing people constantly tell you you need to be in church, and that sounds legalistic to you, might I suggest you need to check your heart's attitude of the church, regarding the church? I think maybe your idea of what the church is and what God's idea of what the church is are not the same. If you think of church like you're being told to get a chore done around the house, you have the wrong heart and the wrong mindset. God does not command us to be faithful to his church because, well, it's just what good Christians do. If you don't want the other Christians to think bad about you, you need to be at church. That's not why. God tells us not to forsake the assembly of the saints because the church is where we are fed God's word, where the creator who spoke the world into existence speaks to us by the preaching of his word. We should think of coming to church not as a chore we're told to get done, but as a joyful opportunity to be taught and sanctified by our creator. We grow in our sanctification by coming to church because we learn more about Christ. We learn more about how to live like him as we are faithful to his body. We are fed the nutrients of God's word. We are expected to exercise what we have learned in our our dealings with others. We are not only fed, we are expected to live and exercise what we are fed. Here in the church, we're able to act out the love of God that we are told about in the scriptures. We're We're challenged to offer forgiveness and patience to others that we are told Christ gave us. Our hearts are continually being molded and reshaped every time we walk through these doors. Every word of God preached and with every encounter with the body of Christ. We should want to have David's mindset about coming to public worship. In Psalms 42.1, David said, As the heart, the deer, pants after the water brooks, so my So my, as the heart pants after the water brooks, so pants my soul after you, O God. He's desperate for the worship of God. But I see many young people abandon the church because uh, when they become young adults, I think partly because they don't see the joy in it. But I would like you to look at God's command in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart, in the sign of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. And don't just take that as a suggestion. This is what you are being told to do. And I find it very interesting and even uh, encouraging how often God not only expects us to have joy, but he commands it. He commands, us, he commands us to rejoice. Let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, Remember thy crea- and to remember thy creator as you do so.
God wants us to serve him not just because it's a chore. He wants us to serve him because we love him. In Deuteronomy 28, 47, Moses tells the Israelites that a curse is going to come on them. Because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. I find it interesting, again, I just find it interesting how often God commands us to have joy in serving him. And that's actually what Solomon keeps saying all throughout the book. I think about nine times throughout Ecclesiastes, he says again and again and again and again, essentially the same thing. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw, that it was from the hand of God. Were you thankful this morning, waking up in a safe, warm bed, getting out of bed with functional legs? Did you receive your food this morning with thankfulness? Did you eat, eat it with hands that don't tremble, teeth that are still there? Were you thankful not just for the nutrients of the food, but the way it tastes, the enjoyment of food? Did you remember that all these things are temporal gifts God has invested in you? And I think that's one of the quickest ways you can kill a Christian. Just kill his joy. Make a Christian forget who his maker is. Make a Christian forget that the highest being in the universe personally created him to bear his image. Make them forget that the, cre- the creator knit them together in their mother's womb. Even before they were born, God set his love on them and chose them. Jeremiah 1, 4-5 says, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in thy be- in the belly. And notice it says, not when you were formed in the belly, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee and ordained thee a prophet to the nations. And while we're not ordained as prophets to the nations, we are ordained to be preachers of the gospel to the nations. If you want to kill a Christian real fast, make him forget the gospel that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, and that he is coming back to glorify us. If we forget that our high and holy creator, who owed us nothing but a fierce hand in his wrath, humbled himself to become a poor and despised man in order to be crucified for our rebellion against him, you'll lose your joy in serving Christ real fast. And that's why it's important to always rehearse the gospel to yourself. But that's not all. There's plenty of things Satan would like you to forget about. Not only can we become forgetful of the good gifts of God's creation, and even in a fallen world, he still allows us to enjoy those many of the good gifts. We can become forgetful of the gospel, and we can be easily be forgetful of how sinful we really are. The more sinful you recognize yourself to be, the more amazing Christ's sacrifice shines on the cross. If you approach God feeling puny and worthless, then good. Because then maybe you'll be able to see just how great and worthy Christ is. And you'll understand why God has exalted his name above all names and not yours. If you'll turn to Luke chapter 7, this will really illustrate the point that understanding the gospel and understanding your own sinfulness will give you the joy to serve. It will always give you something to remember as you live your life. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. I'll try and wrap it up. Luke 
Luke chapter 7, verse 36. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at, at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet be, behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spoke within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answering what he was thinking in his heart, <laughs> and Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, the one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when, he, and when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave, and literally that means he gave grace. He frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgaveth most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and he said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came, has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint. But this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And she loveth much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Obviously, all of our sins are without number. They're countless. But some of us like to think they're not so big. The more you acknowledge your own sinfulness, the more you will love Christ and desire to serve him, to kiss his feet, to wash his feet, to take care of his body. It's also interesting... You can point to many examples of those who thought themselves extremely sinful, and yet we view them as one of the greatest servants of God. This woman was very godly, very humble, because she was repentant and acknowledged her sin. You can also look at someone like the Apostle Paul. We think, what a great example of the faith, so, such a holy man. You think of all the missionary trips he went on, and how much persecution he was willing to endure, and how firmly he preached. But he called himself the chief of sinners, he saw himself as the supreme sinner. And I can that ought to help you understand why he was so eager to serve God and how much he was willing to do, because he understood how much he had been forgiven. Lastly, I want you to always remember that God is not more impressed by apparent great acts of service people do than he is with the boring ones that no one gets credit for. Because he is the one who enables anyone in the church to serve in the capacity they do. What God is concerned with is the heart and attitude you serve with, not the grandeur of the act performed. You can serve God as you choose to come to church on your own, because eventually your parents aren't going to be there to make you come to church. You can serve God as you obey your parents. You're welcome, Mom and Dad. 
<laughs> serve God as you obey your parents, because you are serving him as you do so. You can serve God as you take time to pray and spend time alone with God. These are all different ways to serve God and to remember your creator and what he has done for you. You can always remember to use the body he gave, he gave you to serve others because he's invested much in it and in, and in you. If you waste your body, you have wasted your life because your life is lived in and through the body. And that's all I have for you today. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.